And just like that, it's oh, Monday morning. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you are with us to start off the week. I'm so glad to have my friend Rahel Solomon here with me. Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, June 5th. An investigation now underway after U.S. fighter jets scrambled to intercept an unresponsive aircraft. That's right. The plane ultimately crashed in southwest Virginia on Sunday. The response, though, caused a sonic boom across the nation's capital. Also a big week in the GOP race for the presidential nomination. It started at last night's CNN town hall with Nikki Haley. The former South Carolina governor sharpened her attacks on Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and took questions on abortion and guns. And new this morning, tension with China. The U.S. Navy releasing video of the moment a Chinese warship crossed in front of an American destroyer coming within 150 yards of the U.S. ship. The Navy slamming this as an unsafe interaction in the Taiwan Strait. Today could be Apple's biggest product launch since the Apple Watch. Will the company's official push into virtual reality land with consumers and investors? Also, it's expensive. We'll get into that. <laughs> yes, it is. And we are all tied up. Miami heats up to hold off the Denver Nuggets in Game 2 of this the NBA Finals. CNN This Morning starts right now. That was a good one. Miami heats up. Did you watch? Heats it up. Uh, I was asleep. I know. <laughs> I was going to bed and my husband's on the couch still watching. And then I hear him like aggravated. I think he wanted the Nuggets. Denver to, Nuggets I think he wanted Fair. the Nuggets to win. Yeah, game two, making it an even more exciting series. We'll get to sports in a moment. But let's begin here with politics this morning. Nikki Haley taking some big swipes at Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis during last night's CNN town hall. The Republican presidential hopeful sharply criticized her party's frontrunners. She blasted DeSantis for his feud with Disney, also slammed Trump for praising North Korea's brutal dictator Kim Jong-un. Watch. There's nothing good or decent about Kim Jong-un. I don't think we ever should congratulate dictators. Congratulate our friends. Don't congratulate our enemies. It emboldens them when we do that. Nikki Haley also faced some really important questions over red flag laws when it comes to guns, also over any potential federal abortion ban and other key issues. Let's begin this hour with our chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zeleny, live in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Jeff, good morning. It was such an interesting town hall full of so much substance. She got a pretty warm welcome from a lot of the folks there. But this was her chance last night to separate herself from a growing field. Did she succeed in that? Good morning, Poppy. A growing field and one that's getting even bigger this week. Look, she definitely sought to introduce herself by touting her economic credentials uh, during her time as the uh, governor of South Carolina. And she talked about her conservative credentials as well. But it was critical how she was trying to draw even the sharpest distinctions with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who she called out for being hypocritical in his fight with Disney. I'm in this to win it. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley seeking to elevate her candidacy for president by calling for consensus on polarizing issues like abortion. I think we can all agree on banning late-term abortions. I think we can all agree on encouraging adoptions and making sure those foster kids feel more love, not less. At a CNN town hall in Iowa, she broke with two Republican frontrunners on key foreign policy issues like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You can't be trustful of a regime that goes in and tries to take away people's freedoms. And for them to sit there and say that this is a territorial dispute, 
that's just not the case to say that we should stay neutral. It is in the best interest of America. It's in the best interest of our national security for Ukraine to win. We have to see this through. We have to finish it. She called out Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's legal battle with Disney as hypocritical. He went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. Haley also said former President Donald Trump and DeSantis have not been straight with voters about the fiscal solvency of Social Security and other programs. I think it's important to be honest with the American people. We are in this situation. Don't lie to them and say, oh, we don't have to deal with entitlement reform. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's the reality. I'm always going to tell the truth. Is it going to hurt? Yes. At 51, Haley has said she would bring a generational change to the White House. Asked whether she believed she would experience sexism as a female candidate, she said this. So none of my jobs have ever had a line going to the women's bathroom, ever. <laughs> but she drew applause when she said it was time to break the presidential glass ceiling. I'm a big fan of women. We balance, we prioritize, we know how to get things done. I mean, honestly, we've let guys do it for a while. It might be time for a woman to get it done. The town hall put an exclamation point on a busy weekend of campaigning in the state that opens the Republican contest early next year. Well, hello, I with DeSantis joining some of his Republican rivals as they shook hands and introduced themselves to party activists. There is no substitute for victory, and we need to dispense with the culture of losing that has beset the Republican Party in recent years. Trump was the only major candidate who declined an invitation to Senator Joni Ernst's annual roast and ride, where motorcycles and barbecue come with the side of politics. Yet the former president looms large over the presidential race and sits at the center of the choices facing Republicans as the campaign intensifies. What's the balance in your party, do you think, of people who want to turn the page and move forward versus a turn back to Donald Trump? I think there are a lot of folks that want to move forward. I know that President Trump has a great base here. It, it is strong. But at the same time, people don't want to hear about what has happened in the past because we've had two years of a Biden administration that is just destroying our nation. And that is the central challenge and the question hanging over this Republican electorate. Do they want to turn the page and move forward or stick with former President Donald Trump? And Senator Ernst there was pretty blunt in saying she believes many want to move forward. She said that uh, that Trump can also move forward and look ahead. But of course, it's an open question if he will do that. As for Nikki Haley, she made a strong impression on the Republican voters in the room last night. The ones I talked to after the town hall said they liked her humor. They liked her uh, forcefulness on many of these issues. Of course, this week, the race gets more crowded yeah. when Chris Christie is set to jump in tomorrow. And Mike Pence here in Iowa on Wednesday, he's formally jumping in. And Je Jeff, that's really interesting what you heard from folks coming out of the town hall, because I'm assuming they went in there, you know, some of them Nikki right. Haley supporters, but certainly not all of them. Exactly. I mean, they uh, certainly were familiar with her record, but uh, most are not steep in the specifics. But the yeah. ones we talked to afterward were very impressed with how she presented herself. And Poppy, interestingly, she's been doing these town halls all across Iowa, just not with the TV cameras on. I think that came through because she was very practiced sure. on these answers. So uh, there are more open minds here among Republican voters than uh, people uh, might think. So that is uh, an interesting fact as the summer yeah. intensifies on the campaign trail. It really is. Bobby. Jeff Zeleny, thank you for the reporting in Des Moines.
Also, Jeff mentioned uh, former Vice President Pence jumping in the race later this week. That's going to happen Wednesday, and our Dana Bash will moderate a CNN Republican town hall live from Iowa with former President Mike Pence. That is 9 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday night, only right here on CNN. This morning, investigators will head to a crash site in Virginia after a private jet with an unresponsive pilot went down. And in an attempt to intercept the plane, military fighter jets scrambled so fast they caused a sonic boom. The National Transportation Safety Board says that it will begin the process of documenting the scene and examining the aircraft. Authorities say no survivors were found at the crash site. CNN's Brian Todd, live force in Greenville, Virginia. Brian, good morning. So what more do we know about what happened here and also where this jet was heading? Well, Rahel, the jet was originally scheduled to head to Long Island. Uh, this morning, investigators are trying to determine what caused that pilot to become unresponsive in the cockpit. It was the boom heard far and wide across the Washington, D.C. region, disrupting a Sunday music rehearsal and sending people and pets running for cover. The cause? U.S. 16 fighter jets scrambled to reach a Cessna Citation private jet, unresponsive and flying through tightly controlled Washington, D.C. airspace. According to FlightAware, the civilian aircraft took off from Elizabethton Municipal Airport in Elizabethton, Tennessee at 1.13 p.m. and was bound for Long Island MacArthur Airport in New York. The plane, with four people on board, then turned around over Long Island, heading back over the Washington, D.C. area, nearly two hours after it originally took off. That's when NORAD scrambled the F-16s, who were authorized to travel in supersonic speeds in pursuit of the jet. According to a news release from the Continental U.S. North American Aerospace Defense Command region, the pilot of the civilian aircraft was unresponsive as the F-16 fighter jets attempted to make contact. At one point, according to the statement, the F-16s used flares in an attempt to draw attention from the pilot. The Cessna 560 Citation 5, traveling more than 300 miles off course, going off radar at 3.23 p.m. and ultimately crashing in a rural, mountainous terrain near George Washington National Forest near Charlottesville, Virginia. Late Sunday, according to a statement from Virginia State Police, first responders reached the crash site by foot but found no survivors. Now, according to FAA records, that private jet was registered to a company called Encore Motors out of Melbourne, Florida, owned by Barbara and John Rumpel. They told the Washington Post that family members of theirs were on board that plane, including their daughter, a grandchild, and her nanny. They told the New York Times that the family was returning to their home in East Hampton, New York, from another family home in North Carolina, and that their grandchild is two years old. NTSB investigators are expected to be at the scene later today. Rahel, Poppy. I want to come here. Brian Todd, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Joining us now, CNN Aviation Correspondent Pete Montine. Pete, good morning to you. What, what, what can be ruled out right now? A lot can be ruled out here, Poppy, but all of the signs point to that this was a rapid decompression of this Cessna Citation jet. The air inside 
is pressurized, enabling those inside to breathe normal air, while outside the air is thin and unbreathable. This is very similar, very likely, to the Payne Stewart crash of 1999 that killed that professional golfer on board a Learjet. What is so interesting about rapid decompression essentially leads to a ghost plane, one of the spookiest outcomes that professional pilots worry about. Up high at altitude, when the airplane decompresses very quickly, that leads to air inside being very unbreathable. At 34,000 feet, where this plane was cruising, that leads to an effective performance time, EPT, consciousness of only 30 to 60 seconds. In that time, the flight crew needs to put on oxygen masks very quickly or risk becoming hypoxic. The symptoms, it's an insidious killer. First off, you feel drowsy, you feel like you're drunk, and then ultimately you feel sleepy, and then you lie into unconsciousness. It is a very creepy outcome here and very similar to that crash in 1999. Of course, something the National Transportation Safety Board will look at here, Poppy and Rahel, although they will have to figure out, of course, from autopsies, whether or not this pilot crew on board ultimately was hypoxic. And can we learn anything about about what may have happened here from the flight path? The flight path tells a very interesting story here, and the plane was very likely on autopilot. It stayed perfectly at its cruising altitude filed to the FAA at 34,000 feet when it went from East Tennessee all the way to MacArthur Airport uh, in Long Island, New York. But then the question here is, why did the airplane turn? Why did it turn back to the Southwest and over Washington, D.C., and then ultimately crashing in Virginia? Likely something with the autopilot. It may have stayed on. We would have to actually see the equipment on board, and that's something that the NTSB will dig into with the records of the airplane. Why did it turn? What were the settings on the autopilot? And why did it simply keep flying? It was very likely that NORAD knew that there was not much of a risk here. The airplane was up high. We knew the airplane was unresponsive. It was above, well above some of the restricted airspace in Washington, D.C., although it did penetrate it, which led to the scrambling of those fighter jets in pursuit, breaking the sound barrier, that sonic boom, that boom that was heard far and wide from Annapolis to Leesburg, really everywhere. Mm -hmm. Those fighter jets trying to catch up with it. They had to go faster than this jet was going about 400 miles an hour. Really startled a lot of people. Pete Montine, thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thinking about the four people. We have new and exclusive CNN reporting this morning. Ukraine is recruiting agents inside Russia and providing them with drones to stage attacks. Those details ahead. Also, tensions with China are on the rise after a Chinese warship nearly collided with a U.S. Navy destroyer. What both countries are saying this morning. More CNN this morning to come after the break. That is a new Ukrainian military video posted on social media urging silence around plans about the highly anticipated counteroffensive, of course, against Russia. This video ends with a banner and it says, plans love silence. There will be no start announcement. Meantime, Russian forces uh, have been claiming to foiled a major Ukrainian offensive in Donetsk. The Russians releasing new video, which they say shows Ukrainian military vehicles coming under heavy fire in that battle. And we also have really fascinating new exclusive reporting this morning of sources saying Ukraine has cultivated a network of agents to act as sabotage cells within Russia. U.S. officials believe that Ukraine has been providing them with drones, including 
the one that hit the Kremlin last month that has gotten so much attention. Our Natasha Bertrand joins us now. Natasha, this is fascinating reporting that you have for us this morning. Tell us what you've learned. Yeah, Poppy, so there has been a steady drumbeat of mysterious fires and explosions inside Russia over the last year, largely targeting oil depots, uh, fuel depots, railways, pipelines. But officials have noticed a marked increase in those kinds of attacks on Russian soil in recent weeks, including just how brazen they've become, beginning, of course, with that drone attack on the Kremlin uh, last month. And U.S. officials are now telling us that they do believe that Ukraine has agents and sympathizers inside Russia who who are carrying out these attacks on Ukraine's behalf. And not only that, but also that Ukraine has actually given them drones in order to carry out uh, these acts of sabotage. Now, there are still a number of questions here, uh, including whether all of the drone attacks that we have seen over the last several weeks uh, inside Russia have been carried out by these pro-Ukraine sympathizers and agents. It is unclear uh, whether that is the case at this point. But what U.S. officials do believe is that that attack on the Kremlin last month that had that saw two drones target the Kremlin Senate Palace in May, they do believe that that uh, incident was carried out by these pro-Ukrainian operatives inside Russia. Still unclear at this point who exactly in Ukraine is controlling uh, these operatives and these kinds of sabotage cells, right? But U.S. officials do believe that they are controlled by elements within Ukraine's intelligence community. And they note that Ukrainian President Zelensky does not require sign-off on every one of the operations uh, that these agents and saboteurs carry out inside Russia. So uh, a really interesting look here at how Ukraine is taking uh, the war to Russia itself. And it really makes you look at the statements out of Ukraine over the last month or so that insisting it has not been directly involved in any of those drone attacks inside of Russia. What about the West, the position of the United States, Western allies, NATO, supportive of this tactic? Yeah, Poppy. So outwardly, you know, U.S. officials say that they do not support these kinds of attacks inside Russia. But privately, U.S. and Western officials actually tell us that they think this is a pretty smart military strategy. And in fact, the U.K. foreign secretary told reporters just earlier this month that Ukraine, quote, has the right to project force beyond its borders to undermine Russia's ability to project force into Ukraine itself. And the French vice admiral actually told CNN on Friday that these attacks are merely, quote, part of war. So they believe that it is a good strategy to distract Russia, to divert resources, and importantly, make the Russian population fear that they really are not safe anywhere. Bobby. Natasha, thank you. Fascinating reporting this morning. Rahel. And staying overseas now, massive crowds stretching a mile long, taking to the streets in Warsaw, Poland this weekend. As we see here, hundreds of thousands marched with banners reading, free European Poland and voicing their dissent to eight years of right-wing conservative rule by the Law and Justice Party. The marches took place in several cities and were organized by the opposition, who want to deprive the government of its claims to the legacy of solidarity. That's the trade union movement that led the struggle against communism and Russia after World War II. The protests come ahead of a critical general election in the fall. As communities across the country protest gun violence, especially this weekend, nearly 100 people were shot and lost their lives as a result. We'll hear from the people saying enough is enough. That is next. To you, gun violence is a disease. Yes, and the country is the victim in this case.
Welcome back. A Trump-appointed judge in Tennessee has ruled that a law restricting drag shows in the state is unconstitutional. In his ruling released late Friday, he called the law unconstitutionally vague and substantially overbroad. He also said it violated free speech rights. Republican Governor Bill Lee signed the bill, which restricts public drag performances into law in March, prompting protests in the state. GOP lawmakers argued that they wanted to protect children from what they characterize as overtly sexual performances. In a statement Saturday, the Tennessee's attorney general said he does expect to appeal the ruling at, quote, the appropriate time. This morning, officials in Sunnyvale, Texas, are searching for the suspects involved in a late-night shooting that killed one person. Four people were also injured. Three of those, by the way, are children. Their injuries are not ser- are serious but not life-threatening, we're told this morning. And this weekend alone, nearly 100 people died from shootings in this country just this weekend, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Doctors who are on the front lines of this crisis liken it to a deadly illness plaguing the country. Watch this report from our Josh Campbell. This is the number one cause of death of American children, which is just unacceptable and astonishing. Those on the front line saving children's lives fed up with America's gun violence epidemic. To you, gun violence is a disease. Yes, and the country is the victim in this case. The outrage felt by pediatrician Dr. Nicole Webb on display across the country this past weekend as demonstrators took to the streets demanding an end to the endless gun violence ravaging the nation. Enough is enough. Let's take it upon ourselves to inspire action so that students across the country can worry about homework and tests, not gun violence. National Gun Violence Awareness Day began after the brutal killing of 15-year-old Hadia Pendleton on a Chicago playground in 2013. Murdered one week after marching with her school's band in a parade celebrating Barack Obama's second presidential inauguration. Pendleton's mother speaking out. There have been thousands of other you know, families that unfortunately have joined this fraternity that no one wants to be a part. But tens of thousands more have been impacted since her daughter's death. More than 18,000 people have been shot and killed so far this year. The federal government calling gun violence a public health crisis. And while guns are often politically polarizing, most Americans surveyed in a recent CNN poll agree gun control laws should be stricter. American health professionals say common sense evidence-based safety efforts should not be partisan at all. States with red flag laws see fewer high-profile mass shootings. States that have closed loopholes in the background check system see fewer um, shootings involving illegally obtained weapons. A recent troubling trend, guns in the hands of children. In recent weeks, at least nine teens arrested for bringing guns on campus, including a Phoenix student arrested with an AR-15. The most helpful thing anyone can do is store their weapons securely. Your child may be comfortable around the gun. It may even be something that you purchased as a gift. It may be something that's really important to your family. Um, They have a bad day at school. Um, They're feeling down and, you know, they make a decision that um, they can't recover from. But even basic evidence-based safety efforts have drawn the ire of America's gun lobby. The NRA said in this tweet that someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. How do you respond to that? The only lane that matters is safety. Every American citizen should be free to live their life without the fear that they might be shot to death. Are you anti-gun? No, I'm not. Anyone who's actually really interested in what is going to keep a majority of people safe is not going to take that approach. And while major national reforms remain stalled, the killing continues. 
All right, well, coming up for us, trains are back on the track in India this morning, days after 275 people lost their lives. It's one of the deadliest railway crashes in India. Coming up next, we are live on the ground. The disaster zone runs uh, as far as the eye can see uh, here with railroad cars scattered on the side of the road. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. New this morning, the U.S. government announcing a plan to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to try to fix really dangerous intersections where trains and cars cross. The Biden administration will spend $570 million in infrastructure money. They'll replace, improve, or study the so-called grade crossings in an effort to reduce the approximately 2,000 collisions that happen here each year. It's also going to reduce congestion, they hope, where trains block traffic. Nearly 26,000 of those blocking incidents were reported to the Department of Transportation in just the last year. All right, Bobby, thank you. Also new this morning, a young man has been found alive two days after that deadly train crash in India. The crash killed at least 275 people and injured more than 1,000. This all happened in the state of Odisha. And according to a CNN affiliate, the man was discovered unconscious and severely injured just a short distance from the accident site. Rescue efforts have ended as anger now grows over safety issues. That's after India's railways minister said that the crash was caused by a signal failure. CNN's Ivan Watson live for us in eastern India. Ivan, look, incredible that this man even survived what more do we know about this signal failure? Right. I'm, I'm sorry. The police have asked us to move away from uh, location we were at, so we're just stepping back. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that these trains are huge, and they were moving at high speed, 80 miles per hour. So if you get a signal malfunction, an entire train can get moved onto another track uh, as is believed to have happened here and slam into something like a parked cargo train uh, with devastating results. Take a look at this report. Working on the railroad. An army of laborers laying new rail by hand. Racing to reopen this transport route after one of the deadliest train disasters India has seen in its modern history. Uh, on Friday night, three trains collided in this area and everywhere on the side of the tracks in this rural part of eastern India, uh, there are massive railroad cars uh, that were, uh, as you can see, severely damaged in this collision. This vehicle here, this car, uh, was reserved for people with disabilities. You can still see uh, people's personal belongings uh, down below right outside. <laughs> It began with a passenger train moving at 128 kilometers or 80 miles per hour, slamming into a parked freight train, colliding after dark in this rural area. Villagers rescued passengers by the light of their cell phones. Did you actually, as volunteers, pull survivors from the train wagons? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, one the worst hit train wagon where I, I told the other uh, guys to put the mobile light. I entered into it. It was no space, literally, because it was so inclined that everybody was male, female. Everyone was dumped at a place. So uh, we had to pull them very carefully. We pulled them out. Few were alive. We just separated them. Few were dead. So we have to don't have to waste the time. 
Crowds of volunteers gather outside local hospitals. Local reporters interviewing a crash survivor being transferred for treatment. Among the crowd here, a worried mother. She's still searching for her missing son, who was a passenger on the train. Inside the hospital, some of the more than 1,000 injured in the crash. The road to recovery may not be easy. This 52-year-old farmer in so much pain, he can't lie down. I'm blessed to have another chance at life, says Manto Kumar. The 32-year-old said the collision felt like an earthquake. Afterwards, I took my shirt and wrapped it around my head and started looking for my friends, he says. Kumar says he shared an ambulance with his friend who lost both legs and later died. The Indian government launched an investigation into this disaster and vows to punish anyone responsible. The pressure is on to ensure a catastrophe like this never happens again. Now, the fact is, is just this last weekend, the Indian prime minister was supposed to be inaugurating the launch of a, a, a brand new high speed train. But I think as this devastating accident has demonstrated, there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done uh, to ensure the safety of the existing aging trains that operate and carry, you know, millions of Indians around this country every day. Back to you. Great point. Ivan, you've been out there uh, all week in force, really just doing incredible reporting, bringing us these pictures. Uh, we know a lot is happening around the scene there, so we thank you for being there and bringing these details to us and all of our viewers. Thank you. It's so devastating because India had done so much, especially under this prime minister, to exactly. try to improve safety. Right. So now there are a lot of questions sort of about what was prioritized. And so there are going to be a lot of questions moving forward. Amazing reporting by Ivan and his team. All right. Now to China. Tension rising after a Chinese warship crossed within 150 yards of an American missile destroyer. This happened in the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. vessel was taking part in a joint exercise with the Canadian Navy, but forced to slow down in order to avoid a collision. And now China is accusing the U.S. of starting the provocation. Our Anna Corrin joins us live in Hong Kong with more. Anna, what can you tell us? Well, Poppy, there is genuine concern that near misses like this one could turn into a crisis. And this is something the U.S. says it desperately wants to avoid. Uh, let's talk through what happened on Saturday. The USS Chung-Hoon and Canada's HMCS Montreal, they were transiting through the Taiwan Strait as part of a, a joint exercise when a Chinese vessel cut in front of the U.S. destroyer, carrying out what U.S. officials say was a, quote, unsafe manoeuvre within 150 yards. The U.S. destroyer was forced to slow down to avoid a collision, as you can see in this video released by the U.S. Navy. It is no surprise, Poppy, that China is blaming the U.S. for what took place. Uh, within hours of the incident, China's defence minister accused the U.S. of provocation and creating chaos in the region. Now, a short time ago, we heard from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Let me read to you some of what was said. He said, the truth is that the United States is provoking trouble first and China is dealing with it in accordance with laws and regulations. The actions taken by the Chinese military are necessary measures to deal with the provocations of certain countries and they are reasonable, legal, safe and professional. Now, uh, probably some analysts believe it is the first time that such a, a close 
encounter has occurred during a US Navy transit of the Taiwan Strait. You know, as we know, Taiwan is a very sensitive bilateral uh, issue for the United States and China, and it is the most you know, dangerous potential military uh, flashpoint. The backdrop to all of this was the annual Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, where it was hoped that the US Defence Secretary and his Chinese counterpart uh, would meet and perhaps ease rising tensions. But an awkward handshake was as good as it got after the Chinese rejected a private meeting. Uh, US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin had firm words for China, saying that Washington would not accept coercion and bullying of allies and partners and cautioned the Chinese military against quote, unprofessional intercepts by warplanes over the South China Sea uh, following that encounter just a few uh, weeks ago. But despite all this, Poppy, you know, the Biden administration remains hopeful mm -hmm. that there will be a meeting of minds uh, between the two countries and that President Biden and President Xi Jinping will meet uh, sometime in the future. Yeah. That was interesting. After this non-meeting, just that awkward handshake, as you said, that happened between uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and his Chinese counterpart, uh, the fact that Jake Sullivan said yesterday, in fact, Xi Jinping and Biden will meet. We just don't know when. So we'll watch very closely. Yeah. Anna, thanks for the reporting. More to come there, more to come here. We are just hours away from a big announcement from Apple, what they plan to unveil today and how much it would set you back. Also, a deal has been reached to avoid a second Hollywood strike. We'll tell you which group this is and the clause, interestingly, about artificial intelligence in the agreement. Those details ahead. Welcome back. And today, Apple is set to announce its biggest product launch in years. It's a mixed reality headset. So the headset is expected to offer both virtual and augmented reality. We'll talk about what the difference <laughs> is between those things in a moment. Technology that can lay virtual images on top of live real world video. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, joins us now. So this is being touted as, by all the techies, the biggest thing since the yeah. Apple Watch. Since the watch. You know, a lot of times Apple has these developer conferences. They get all this attention. And maybe sometimes it's not really warranted. There's just some upgrades. But this is really something people have been looking forward to for a long time. So there's a lot of buzz, and it's pretty highly anticipated. Um, and the cost here, $3,000 is expected to be the price tag. And so we can talk about whether the economy can withstand something like that. But for people who are really big into this, they want it. It's, it's dubbed a mixed reality headset. So it's virtual reality, but also augmented uh, reality. You're going to be able to have access to like FaceTime and Safari and messages. Uh, and, and so you'll be able to have apps for gaming and fitness and meditation. And then the, the look of it, I don't know if you've seen the Oculus and some of the other yeah, headsets the, are out the there. The Oculus is big. It's big and it's just like, it looks like a robot, yeah. you know, robot goggles. This is going to have like features. So it looks as if you're interacting with other people. This is what the buzz is. We haven't seen it yet. We will see it at 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, 10 on the, on the West Coast. But a lot of people have been really eagerly anticipating this. And I think there's going to be some software upgrades. So for the rest of us who just use the plain vanilla Apple products, you know, there will be some software upgrades. I think there are operating system upgrades that will be important. And what will they say about AI? I mean, Silicon Valley is in, a, in an arms race right now over artificial intelligence. Right. So I'm going to really be looking to see what, what Apple says, says about AI and where, where Apple is. 
is in that in that race. Yeah. A lot of people have been anticipating this, but do we think a lot of people are actually going to spend three thousand so dollars to wear this? I'm not. I know. I mean, this is not like my Poppy jam. still has you know like mixtapes and a cassette. That is you may not be the target market. Eight tracks. <laughs> you are not the target market. But I, I will say that um, I've been looking at the economy. People spend money when they want to spend money. I mean, air travel is going to soar this year. Um, people may trade down for the cut of meat at Costco, but then they turn around and they buy something really expensive, expensive huh. piece of technology. So, I mean, we've been calling it, what, the discretionary recession. We're not in a recession, but people are being careful about what they pay for. I think for the people who are fans, Apple fans, and for people who really want this AR, VR experience, I think $3,000, I think they'll pay it. We shall see. We know that the luxury brands have been doing well. So you're right. People will certainly spend where they want to. We'll see. And a lot more to learn later today. Yeah. Christine Roman. I'll be watching. Thank I'll you. let you know tomorrow. All right. So the union that represents film and TV directors, they have struck a deal, a tentative deal with studios, according to avoiding, I should say, a second Hollywood strike. This agreement comes as the writers, though, enter their sixth week of striking with no deal in sight. A group representing the studios says that they agreed to increased pay, and streaming residuals for directors. This deal also limits the use of artificial intelligence and bans live ammunition on TV and film sets, of course, after the tragedy on the Rust set. Of course, uh, that is after Alec Baldwin fired off a prop gun and live ammunition hit and killed that film cinematographer. Now, the Writers Guild is also demanding pay increases and AI limits in any deal they may reach with the studios, but some writers say their strike could last to the end of the summer, that could put more films and shows on hold. But the directors, there was real concern the directors and the writers were going to strike at the same time. Yeah. What would that mean? Uh, shall we talk sports? You Maybe? can talk sports. Yeah. I'm just going to smile, <laughs> uh, as I usually do. I okay. know nothing about this series. I think a lot of people will be talking sports today because the Miami Heat slamming down talk of getting sweeped by the Denver Nuggets. Coming up next, highlights of Game 2 of the NBA Finals. We'll be back more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Denver does have a timeout, but they're not using it. Four seconds. Murray, step back, three-pointer. One go. Fight for the rebound. Martin, and it's over. The Miami Heat have tied the NBA Finals. What a comeback here on the road for the Heat. The NBA Finals heading to Miami after the Heat tied up the series in a tight game two last night. Our Koi Wire, CNN Sports anchor, is with us. And you made it almost, almost <laughs> to the end of the game, Koi. Well, I was up yesterday early morning here in Atlanta with Rahel. Mm. And then I tried staying awake all night. I don't know how she's staying awake right now. Uh, but, yes, this game was awesome. It took all heart, all gas, no breaks by the Heat. An epic fourth-quarter rally back in Game 2. The Nuggets, though, stealing the show in the first half on a 33-9 run. Watch Max Struess whack Jamal Murray in the head, but he still throws down. He gets up and tells Struess, uh, to get on up out of here. And how about Nikola Jokic, like a seven foot, 285 pound runaway freight train on his way to 41 points, joining LeBron and Larry Bird as the only players with 500 points, 200 rebounds, and 150 assists in a single postseason. But here come the Heat. They're unlikely heroes rising again. Duncan Robinson, mean mugging, scoring all 10 of his points in the fourth. Then Bam out of bio. After their game one loss, Jimmy Butler said they needed to pressure the rim, attack more. Enough said. But the Nuggets, they had a chance to tie with 15 seconds left. They don't call a timeout. Murray's shot does not drop. Miami. 
scored 36 in the fourth to win 111-108, pulling off their seventh double-digit comeback this postseason. And it ties them for the most in any single playoffs in the last quarter century. Here's Butler. We're not worried about what anybody thinks. Um, we're so focused in on what we do well and who we are as a group that at the end of the day, that's what we fall back on. Um, make or miss shots, we're going to be who we are because we're not worried about anybody else. It's how it's been all year long, and um, that's not going to change. So that's what I think it is. I think it's the I don't give a damn factor. Well, damn, Jimmy. How about the other Miami area oh. team? Can they even up their playoff series at one apiece? The Florida Panthers down 0-1 to Vegas, who got stellar performance in the net from goalie Aiden Hill in game one. But both teams know there's still plenty of series left to play. We know that it doesn't mean anything winning one game in one series. So uh, for us, the focus uh, is on next game, and uh, that's how we're going to approach every game. We all dreamt about having this opportunity um you know for for many of us it was pretty far-fetched so just um you know if you can't enjoy it you know you, you shouldn't be here poppy rahel game two of the stanley cup final is tonight puck drops at 8 p.m eastern on tnt it's getting hot in vegas <laughs> thanks coy <laughs> <laughs> got it and seeing this morning continues right now I don't play for second. I'm in this to win it. Nikki Haley making a generational appeal to Republican voters at a CNN town hall. She sought to walk a careful line on abortion policy. She did differentiate herself from Donald Trump and DeSantis. I mean, honestly, we've let guys do it for a while. It might be time for a woman to get it done. So. Police say they have found no survivors from a small plane that crashed in southwest Virginia on Sunday. There was that very loud sonic boom. It was the result of those F-16 fighter jets being scrambled. This was something that was intentional, and they were trying to get to this airplane with the pilot who was not responding. The Chinese warship cut in front of a U.S. Navy destroyer. The Pentagon says the two ships came within 150 yards of colliding. U.S.-China relationship is at its lowest point in decades. We will, I hope, soon see American officials engaging at senior levels with their Chinese counterparts over the coming months. This is the scene of one of the deadliest railroad disasters that India has seen in its modern history. At least 275 people were killed, more than 1,000 injured in the accident. It was chaos. It, it was something that I really cannot describe. There were lots of bodies. It was horrifying. Some quick action from a school bus driver in Milwaukee saved the lives of 37 students. If she had acted just one minute slower, this whole scene could have been much worse. When the kids are on my bus, they're like my children. So I just reacted in a way that I want somebody to react for my son. Total hero. We would all want her driving our children. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us on this Monday. Rahel Solomon. Is here. Glad you're here. Good to be here, Thanks Poppy. For getting up extra Thanks for sharing early with me. Of course. All right, now let's this. start this hour with this a sonic boom rocking the nation's capital as fighter jets chased a Cessna that flew over DC through restricted airspace. So that boom, that boom there, that was the boom caught on security video. 
So officials say the pilot of this plane was not responding over the radio. So jets were scrambled and the U.S. Capitol was put on alert. The plane ended up crashing into the mountains of southwest Virginia. There were no survivors on board. We are told the plane crashed on its own and the F-16s did not shoot it down. Our correspondent Brian Todd is following this story. Four people died in this crash. Do we know why it happened? Poppy Rahel, investigators still trying to figure that out. There were some, indeed, some very scary moments in the skies over Washington, D.C., ending in that crash not far from here, about 170 miles southwest of D.C. Investigators this morning trying to figure out how that pilot became unresponsive in the cockpit. It was the boom heard far and wide across the Washington, D.C. region, disrupting a Sunday music rehearsal and sending people and pets running for cover. The cause? U.S. 16 fighter jets scrambled to reach a Cessna Citation private jet, unresponsive and flying through tightly controlled Washington, D.C. airspace. According to FlightAware, the civilian aircraft took off from Elizabethton Municipal Airport in Elizabethton, Tennessee at 1.13 p.m. and was bound for Long Island MacArthur Airport in New York. The plane, with four people on board, then turned around over Long Island, heading back over the Washington, D.C. area, nearly two hours after it originally took off. That's when NORAD scrambled the F-16s, who were authorized to travel in supersonic speeds in pursuit of the jet. According to a news release from the Continental U.S. North American Aerospace Defense Command region, the pilot of the civilian aircraft was unresponsive as the F-16 fighter jets attempted to make contact. At one point, according to the statement, the F-16s used flares in an attempt to draw attention from the pilot. The Cessna 560 Citation 5, traveling more than 300 miles off course, going off radar at 3.23 p.m. and ultimately crashing in a rural, mountainous terrain near George Washington National Forest near Charlottesville, Virginia. Late Sunday, according to a statement from Virginia State Police, first responders reached the crash site by foot but found no survivors. Now, according to FAA records, that private jet was registered to a company called Encore Motors out of Melbourne, Florida, owned by Barbara and John Rumpel. They told the Washington Post that some of their family members were on board that jet, including their daughter, their granddaughter and her nanny. They told the New York Times that the family was returning to their home in East Hampton, New York, from another family home in North Carolina, and that their granddaughter was two years old. NTSB investigators are expected to be at the scene not far from here later today. Rahel Poppy. That's really sad. Brian Todd, thank you. We do have new details this morning about the group of 16 migrants who were dropped off in Sacramento by a private jet without any advance warning. A local charity says they were approached by individuals in El Paso, Texas, promising jobs and other free support. Now California officials say they're investigating who's behind this. We believe that the state of Florida is involved and one of their vendors that they hired with an official uh, budgetary allotment called Virtual Systems was involved in moving uh, these migrants from Texas to New Mexico, then to Sacramento. So we believe the state of Florida is behind this and we are investigating now to see if there are any criminal or civil laws that have been violated. Our Isabel Rosales is following all of this. Isabel, good morning to you. I think the key question is, did the, I know there were these promises of jobs, et cetera. Did the migrants know where they were going? 
Hey, good morning to you, Poppy. So I spoke with Cecilia Flores. She's an organizer with Sacramento Act, a nonprofit who's been helping out these migrants. And she told me that they were shaken up, confused, that they told her uh, many of them didn't know where they were going before they got onto that plane. And many of them also not even knowing that Sacramento was in California. So here's what we know about their journey. These are 16 migrants from Colombia and Venezuela. They went from El Paso, Texas. Then they were bused to New Mexico from there flown to California and then bus to Sacramento and dropped off on the front steps uh, of a church. Now, Flores tells me that these migrants were promised help by individuals from a private uh, contractor. They were promised that if they went to a different migrant center, they would be helped out with jobs, with shelter, with food. Uh, the, a bus driver dropped them off again at the front steps of that church, rang a doorbell to the building, and then told the group that they would be back. The bus then took off and never returned. In fact, one of the migrants uh, actually called a cell phone number to one of these individuals, but suddenly that number was no longer working. Here's Attorney General Rob Banta of California who is heading this investigation. And the first thing that happened when they got here was someone lied to them, told them they would help them find that uh, work that they hoped for and dreamed of. Um, but instead, they deserted them and dumped them in Sacramento and didn't lift a finger to help find them a job. And again, Banta believes that Florida, the state of Florida, is behind this because these uh, migrants had documents that point to uh, official Florida government. Um, he's also pointing to Vertol Systems Company, Inc. Again, that is the same aviation company behind other migrant flights uh, back in the fall. Uh, two planes full of migrants dropped off in Martha's Vineyard. CNN has reached out to officials in both Texas and uh, Florida for comment. We have not heard back yet. Pompey. Isabel, thank you for that reporting. And new this morning, Russia is claiming that it fought back a large-scale offensive from the Ukraine on the front line in Donetsk, a claim that CNN has not been able to in independently verify. And Russia also released this video. The Defense Ministry claims that it shows Ukrainian armored vehicles coming under heavy fire. You see here plumes of smoke billowing upwards. Ukraine has not commented on these claims yet, but there has been a big push for battleground secrecy ahead of the planned counteroffensive, including a new video with Ukrainian troops should the F-16s roar in. Watch. Also, Ukrainian President Zelensky telling The Wall Street Journal over the weekend that he and his troops are ready. Which is obviously a tense moment. There's a lot of talk about the counteroffensive. Is there anything you can tell us about that? In my opinion, as of today, we are ready to do it. We would like to have certain things, but we can't wait for months. We strongly believe we will succeed. I don't know how long it will take. And this comes as we've seen increased attacks inside of Russia in recent weeks, shelling in the border region of Belgorod and drone attacks in Moscow at a Russian oil refinery, even at the Kremlin. Joining us now, retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Major Mike, welcome to the program. Good morning. So how significant are what we're starting to see now happening within Russia's territory? Yeah, I, I think there's significant. I think there's always a chance for asymmetric warfare. And what that means is that once the conventional war kind of dies down, it's this underground troops that uh, take place across the border. I think Ukraine has been setting this for the last few months in areas like Belgorod, for example, where the main supplies are. They have to attack 
Russia's capability to wage war. They come from supply lines in areas like this. And I think that's why um, they're going to be effective, because they've set the tone for the past few months. Ukraine also making new gains in the East. How significant do you think that all sort of becomes as this counteroffensive unfolds? Yeah, I, I think that so this this is the Dnieper River, right? And so this is the, the main obstacle for any thing Ukraine does from a counteroffensive perspective. Now, I, I'm surprised that Zelensky keeps talking about this. I mean, I would want to keep this quiet. We're, we're traveling over the definition of a counteroffensive. Think, think Battle of the Bulge. Think, think of a massive attack that takes place on an axis of advance in order to split the enemy in, in a certain location, okay? So, so watching the Ukraine military set this up, this report, for example, this morning from Russia, that's a location where likely the counterattack could take place. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Russia responds to that. But again, on the other side, they weren't really effective at it. Zelensky himself says they don't even control the airspace. So I'm still not sure that the account offensive is actually still on. And, and speaking of the strategy of just sort of diverting resources, walk yeah. me through that a bit. Well, you know, they're, they're struggling for areas within the South to bring military assets there. Reports over the weekend say the Abrams tanks aren't there. For them to be effective, they have to fight what's called a combat force maneuver operation where artillery, tanks, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, bridging material, things that they must bring more to the battlefield that they just don't appear to have there just yet. Mm -hmm. Major, over the weekend, CNN had some new reporting that Ukraine has essentially cultivated agents inside of yeah. Russia and perhaps also supplying them with drones. In terms of drones, I mean, how significant in terms of um, equipment are, are drones? Yes, very effective. This is, you know, kind of that third dimension now of this level of warfare. Um, to be more creative with what we can do with drones, they, they obviously observe, um, used for attack. But these are the kind of things that will allow Ukraine to kind of reach out, touch Moscow, touch areas and, and places that Russia thought they were safe in. Uh, and we're really seeing them brought to the battlefield. Both sides, too. The Russians have used those drones that have come from Iran as, mm. as well. So this has been a new wrinkle to the battlefield. And, and how do you expect drones, right, to, to measure up or to compare in terms of efficacy, or at least in terms of, of strategy moving forward compared to the F-16s, the Abrams, yeah. et cetera? Tactical advantage only, not really strategic, not, you know, a great linchpin, but it provides uh, certain areas on the ground that would give them um, more or less uh, a, a capability that they didn't have there mm. before. It gives them a greater length. They need distance from Ukraine. If they're going to have any success, they need to attack inside of Russia, attack those capabilities they have of waging war there. The drone gives them that capability, but only in a tactical perspective. Mm -hmm. Major Mike, great to have you this Thanks. morning. Thank you. All right, coming up, Nikki Haley taking swipes at Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump as she tries to stand out from the other Republican presidential hopefuls. He went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. Coming up, we will have the highlights from last night's CNN town hall. And another strong jobs report is easing concerns about a possible recession in the U.S. Yes, that is exactly what I just said. We will break down the latest indicators showing where the economy appears to be heading. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I think it's important to be honest with the American people. We are in this situation. Don't lie to them and say, oh, we don't have to deal with entitlement reform. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's the reality. I'm always going to tell the truth. Is it going to hurt? Yes, but for our kids, they know they're not going to get it anyway. 
Republican and presidential hopeful Nikki Haley drawing a clear distinction from her main rivals, Donald Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis during a CNN town hall. Joining us now, CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings and CNN political commentator and attorney Bakari Sellers. Good morning. Welcome to you both. Good morning. I think let's just start with coming off of that town hall. I mean, how'd she do from your perspective? Was it a good night for her? I, I thought she's a very uh, polished presentation. You know, she may be the most polished uh, politician in the field. The question is, is that what people are looking right. for? Politicians that is the question. These days. And, and uh, you know, she, she had some great moments on Russia. I think I like some of the honesty she had on a few issues. She does engage in a lot of the normal political pablum mm. uh, that sort of is out of vogue right now in the Trump era. Uh, but overall, I thought it was a pretty good night. She passed the test, and uh, we'll see if it makes a difference in her polling results. In the car, you know Nikki Haley. I mean, you have you were in elected office at the same time. I mean, is we, this the we same? We sat Nikki beside each other, not at the same desk, but beside each other for about four years. Um, and we're from the same home county, so shout out to Benburg County. We're, we're punching <laughs> uh, above our weight this morning. Um, but Nikki Haley, I, I'd said this to folk for a long period of time. She's probably the most talented politician in the country. I say that with no hesitation. She's very skilled. She's very good one-on-one -on -one in these small retail settings, which is going to bode well in places like Iowa and New Hampshire and even back at home in South Carolina. The problem that Nikki Haley has is nobody really knows what she stands for. And I'm not sure she clarified that last night. You saw many of the inconsistencies. And sometimes politicians, including myself, we try to get too cute by half and we begin to weave in and weave out. And sometimes we just make no sense. You saw that on things like abortion, where she didn't want to be yelled, nailed down, where she signed a 20-week abortion bill in South Carolina with the exception for life of the mother, uh, but no exception for rape and incest. She didn't really want to talk about that last night. She didn't want to talk about whether or not she would sign her successor's six-week abortion plan. But so when you think about these things, you, you see it was a little bit uneven. She was extremely strong, to Scott's point, on issues that she knows really well on Afghanistan, foreign on policy. Russia, yep. on foreign policy. When she got into wokeism and the, the cultural politics of, of, of the day, you saw she was really uncomfortable. Let's play what she said about Ukraine and Western support for Ukraine and then compare it to what one of her rivals, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, another Republican uh, candidate, had to say about what he thinks we should do vis-a-vis -vis funding Ukraine. Here they were both yesterday. Ukraine has the ability to win. But we have to think bigger than that. And for them to sit there and say that this is a territorial dispute, that's just not the case. To say that we should stay neutral, it is in the best interest of America. It's in the best interest of our national security for Ukraine to win. We have to see this through. We have to finish it. I do not think it is a top foreign policy priority for us. I don't think it is preferable for Russia to be able to invade a sovereign country that it's its neighbor. But I think the job of the U.S. president is to look after American interests. Not only did she distinguish herself from him, she distinguished herself on this issue from Donald Trump and from at least where Ron DeSantis was when Tucker Carlson asked him about it. Yeah, it's a clear-eyed position about the need for the United States to help the Ukrainians repel this Russian invasion. What we didn't play from Ramaswamy is he went further. He said we have to end the war by making major concessions territory. to the Russians, yeah. which is, I mean, this is like, you know, sort of pathetic dorm room debater crap. She had a real clear-eyed position about what's in the best interest. And, and whether this position is the uh, biggest issue in the primary or not, the fact that someone is saying it out loud and making the case of the American people like, we got to win this thing, that is a good thing, and I'm glad she did that. She was very clear. She was very good. The problem that Nikki Haley is going to have is that, is the Republican Party where she is right now? Because she sounded a lot like Lindsey Graham. She sounded a lot like George W. Bush. They just elected Donald Trump, which is the antithesis to everybody I just named. Right. And so Ron DeSantis 
is going to have his lunch eaten by Nikki Haley and Donald Trump on that stage on the issue of foreign policy. He just does not have the depth. You saw it in the Tucker Carlson interview. But Nikki Haley did show she can debate. I think the problem is, where is the majority of, maybe not Republicans, but the Republican voting base? She was was in, though, she made clear, no troops on the ground, we're not doing direct funding, we're arming them, we're working with our allies. I think, actually, that position will fly. It'll be interesting to see if she makes that the centerpiece of her campaign or if this campaign ultimately is just more about the vibe of what it means to be a Republican these days or domestic policy issues. That's also the position of Joe Biden, by the, the way. The vibe versus <laughs> the issue. Well, I think that's interesting because, as you pointed out, Bakari, leaning into uh, foreign policy and her strength there because of her time, of course, with the U.N., is that a top issue for Republican voters? I think it's just still a word from Scott last night. It's, it's more of just like a this, this thing, whole thing is just floating on vibes, to, to steal the word again. It really is. They want a fighter. They want somebody who's going to feel like they're, they're in the ring, they're fighting for them. I don't think they want someone who is an X's and O's policy wonk. Well, you know who is be. a fighter? Chris Christie. Well, I'm excited <laughs> I mean, to see that. I, I mean, I, I, don't bury the lead, why don't you? No, Chris Christie is going to be somebody... And I personally have a conspiracy theory. I think Chris Christie has one job in this primary, which is to take out Donald Trump. I think donors got together and said, you go do your Marco Rubio thing to Donald Trump. So we shall see. (laughs) I think Nikki Haley will be able to stand the test of time, but I just don't think it's her time. I so there is a I I get that it might not be what most voters are focused on, but a real issue with entitlements and Mm -hmm. funding Social Security and Medicare. And I thought Jake did a really good job last night asking her about her plan, because she has been one who said younger folks in their 20s can't be guaranteed to retire at whatever age we're at now. What are we at? 64, 67. I don't know. You're closer. But (laughs) but listen to this, because this is where Jake asked her, Okay, but at what age? What is your plan then to get this back on track? Here's the exchange. Time for some honesty from Nikki Haley. If, if the retirement age is 66 or 67 right now, what are you talking about raising it to for the people in their 20s? Well, we have to go. We'd have to do the calculations. We'd have to figure You're out. An how to, I am an accountant. <laughs> and, and you know what accountants do? Accountants do their homework, and they make sure that when they do something, they do it right or they don't do it. So I'm not going to give you a false number. The crowd applauded, but it was not an answer. Yeah, it was a little bit of a, of a dodge. And I, I do like the fact that she's being honest about it. You know, one thing about Trump and DeSantis on this issue is they're trying to appeal to all these new Republicans who you may recognize because they were Bill Clinton's voters in the 1990s. We now sound like Democrats from the 90s on entitlements. This is like, we're not going to touch it. We'll never touch it. There's nothing wrong. Let's bury our head in the sand. That's not really a legitimate position because, as she said last night, it is going bankrupt if we don't do something. So I like the honesty on the problem. I would like to see more specificity, but this is not the issue that's going to decide the problem. What about the issue of woke? I, I want to play for you very quickly. Uh, that, of course, came up last night as well. We'll hear what she said and talk about it on the other side. How do you define woke? There's a lot of things. I mean, you want to start with biological boys playing in girls' sports. That's one thing. The fact that we have gender pronoun classes in the military now. I mean, all of these things that are pushing what a small minority want on the majority of Americans, it's too much. Oh, you want to, t- you want to take I, this? I, I was gonna, this I was, is your I, this, favorite topic. No, it's not, but the <laughs> silence was just palpable. I appreciated that. No, I, I, first of all, that's not the definition of woke. Woke has been co-opted by a lot of white folk, a lot of conservatives, debased, and then used to mean anything. about that any, on Friday's show, exactly. It's used to mean anything that's, that's not white, that's not straight. Um, and oh. so, 
So that's just not what it is. And you hear people talk about things like cultural Marxism. That's not the root of the word. In fact, the word started in 1920 for most of America so that they understand it was about black folk talking to other black folks saying stay woke when you're in Mississippi or Alabama. Stay woke politically. Stay woke philosophically. That is what the word means. Now, to take it and make it mean something and debase it that it does not. And you saw her last night. She was stumbling across the definition. It means it means uh, transgender uh, girls in a girl's bathroom. Is that what woke means? I mean, what, what does it mean to you, Nikki Haley? She can't define it. Neither can Ron DeSantis. Most Republicans can't. I really hate the debate because it's anti-intellectual, but it's a part of their cultural war that they're trying to wage against. I don't know. Why are you so unsatisfied with Bakari's well, response? Because that's the he's, answer. He's because, because look, the Republicans who are running for president and most Republican voters perceive a very deep cultural rot in the United States that's in government, media, corporations, universities. Everywhere they look, they see this cultural rot. That's the definition. And that's so she hit that note on woke, but then she turned around and attacked Ron DeSantis on Disney well, after saying his one law didn't go far enough, then she attacked him on the lawsuit. She was a little all, she's not as comfortable with it. Yeah. This is where DeSantis is scoring because he is the one who has most clearly defined it and seems to be most clearly focused on it and will not let it go or be distracted by other matters. That cultural rod is also known as diversity, but you know, who's keeping count? A lot more to discuss here, guys, but good thing is it's only June. So it we is. will have plenty of time. We have much more time together. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bakari and Scott, Miles thank you both. All right, coming up this Wednesday, Dana Bash, she's going to moderate a CNN Republican <laughs> presidential town hall from Iowa live with former Vice President Mike Pence. It airs at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Meantime, The New York Times reporting that a voice memo made by Trump's attorney is now in the hands of DOJ prosecutors. What it could mean for the special counsel's investigation to classify documents. That's ahead. It was like a, it was like a stream of content. So a voice memo, there is a recording, and it is by one of Trump's attorneys, Evan Corcoran, and it's now in the hands of DOJ prosecutors. And that could be key in the classified documents case that is dogging the former president. The New York Times reporting, citing sources familiar with the matter, says, quote, in complete sentences and a narrative tone that sounded as if it had been ripped from a novel, Mr. Corcoran recounted in detail a nearly months-long period of the documents investigation. And it also goes on to report that the recordings include recollections of a May 2022 meeting that Corcoran had with Trump. This was about that DOJ subpoena for the return of all classified documents. He also, on this recording, talked about his June search of Mar-a-Lago for classified documents before the FBI came there. CNN previously reported the special counsel Jack Smith has obtained dozens of pages of Corcoran's notes um, memorizing, memorializing conversations with his client after the former president received the subpoena last May. It was at that time that Trump asked whether he could push back on the subpoena. That's according to sources familiar with the notes taken by Corcoran and later handed over to investigators. Joining us now to talk about the implication of this recording in particular is assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, Alexis Hogue Forger. Great to have you. Thank you. It was a real fight with um, with Judge Brail Howell, who ultimately ruled Corcoran's notes have to go to the go to the uh, go to Jack Smith. But this recording, why do you think it could be so key, if indeed he does recommend charges? 
So the judge allowed the notes, um, the recording, the conversation that essentially uh, Corcoran was having with himself about working for Trump. Uh, generally, this would be attorney-client privilege. And Chief Judge Howe, at the time, she has since uh, rotated from the chief judge position, right. um, said it's okay to sort of pierce what would otherwise be private attorney-client privilege information because it could uh, relate to a crime or a fraud. And so what this indicates is that Trump's lawyer, Trump may have used his lawyer, Corcoran, uh, to perpetuate a crime. And so what we're learning from that recording is that Corcoran was instructed to just look in the storage facility at Mar-a-Lago. Um, he was not allowed to look elsewhere. He wasn't advised to look elsewhere. And so when he intimated to the Department of Justice, these are all the classified documents right here from the storage facility. There, we, we know that's not accurate. There were other classified documents found in other locations. And so Corcoran was given limited information. I just one note, he wasn't stopped from looking elsewhere at Mar-a-Lago, but he was directed, these are all here exactly. in this location. Exactly. And so when he intimated that these are all the classified documents, um, he was working with incomplete information. And so somebody in Trump's team who then instructed Corcoran to just look in the storage facility knew that there were other documents elsewhere. Well, in terms of that somebody, who mm -hmm. else might prosecutors want to talk to, maybe a groundskeeper? I mean, who else would they want to talk to in terms of understanding how that all went down? Exactly. So we have learned as the investigation continues to unfold, the Department of Justice subpoenaed uh, recordings um, of who was moving in and out of the storage room. Mm -hmm. And so they have video footage of, I believe, is a former uh, valet of, of uh, President Trump um, who was moving uh, boxes into the storage facility, out Walton of the storage facility. Exactly. Um, and so I imagine that he will likely be subpoenaed and have to testify before the grand if jury. he hasn't already, we, we, we don't know. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, and then a groundskeeper as well who was at Mar-a-Lago. So you brought up the crime-fraud exception mm -hmm. because, because Trump has believed and said many times that, you know, attorney-client privilege, attorney-client privilege. U.S. versus Nixon, the Supreme Court said... Not always. They said the president cannot shield himself from producing evidence in a criminal prosecution based on the doctrine of executive privilege, although it is valid in other situations. So it's not just about attorney-client privilege. It's also claims of executive privilege here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and, and what we're working with here is 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 that Trump um, is allegedly uh, has retained classified documents, has retained sensitive information. And so when you look at the different provisions of federal law, um, again, he has not been charged yet, but we do have some indication uh, based on the search warrant uh, that was executed last year in 2022 uh, that tells us what the Department of Justice is looking at. And it really just requires that Trump has retained documents willingly that he has withheld documents upon request from federal agencies. Um, I'm glad you brought up Nixon. So we're working within the parameters of this Presidential Records Act, PRA. Um, and it, it was passed right after President Nixon tried to destroy records following his presidency in 1974. So this legislation was passed in 1978. We have Trump claiming, oh, the Presidential Records Act allows me 
to have these documents. And in fact, the Presidential Records Act says that a president cannot retain documents after the presidency. They belong to the public. They go to national archives. So we have national archives requesting these documents. And Trump's saying, we don't have them. They're slowly trickling out. We learn uh, each subsequent month that there, there seems to be more documents, uh, documents that he's referencing that haven't been turned over. Um, so you're suggesting the defense may not hold legal water here. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Alexis. Good to have you. Good to see you. Likewise. Thank you. All right. Many CEOs, investors, and economists had predicted a recession would be hitting right about now. So why aren't we seeing it? We'll break down the data. Also, Prince Terry in court in London today, set to present evidence in a phone hacking lawsuit against a British tabloid. We'll take you there live. Welcome back. After months of ringing alarm bells about a potential U.S. recession, I'm sure you have heard those alarm bells. Well, the fears are actually beginning to chill as the U.S. jobs market remains really remarkably resilient in the face of the Fed's fight against inflation. Matt Egan with us now. Good morning. Good morning, guys. So you have a really interesting take and interesting reporting on all of these different indicators and what they tell us. Well, it's amazing how different things are than we thought they would be, right? A year ago, we were all bracing for an economic hurricane, right? That's what Jamie Dimon was calling for. That's what a lot of CEOs were worried about, a recession. Uh, Bloomberg even had uh, a model saying there was a near 100% chance of a recession. And so here we are now, the year is almost half over, no recession. We've basically gotten the equivalent of a thunderstorm. And not even a bad thunderstorm like the one on Friday that caused my three-year-old to uh, run with his friends and hide behind a couch. Not even that, right? It's, it's been pretty mild. Um, and the, the, the big reason why is the jobs market. It's just so much so stronger strong. than anyone thought was possible. Uh, it, it's like a runaway train, right? Mm -hmm. The Fed is slamming the brakes and the jobs market just doesn't care. It's interesting because that's been the silver lining, right? The jobs market, consumer spending. What has not been necessarily so rosy is the Fed and how much they have done with interest rates. They have raised interest rates, of course, as you know, 5% in a little more than a year. The Fed meets again next week. Might we still see a pause even on the back of the strong jobs report? Yes. Right now, investors are placing a 75% chance that the Fed does nothing, which means borrowing costs won't go any higher than they already have. And then the Fed could actually continue to raise rates later this summer. But the whole reason why people were worried about a recession was because the Fed was moving more aggressively than it ever has yeah. before. And what's so amazing is that despite that, people keep getting jobs. Companies are hiring. I mean, that Friday jobs report. I know it was blockbuster. 339,000 jobs added. I just... Here, I thought Brian Moynihan, Bank America CEO, um, interview because they have such a pulse of sort of just the average American consumer. His interview with um, Margaret Brennan yesterday on CBS was really interesting. When he was asked about a recession, here's what he said. So the last time I was here was it was the end of uh, last year, and we predicted a recession this year. We moved it out. It's basically third quarter this year, fourth quarter this year, into first quarter, a mild recession. Uh, and unemployment gets up in a high 4% range, um, still very low by historical norms. And that's our core prediction. My point is, it's like the recession is just getting pushed to 2024. That sort of echoes what Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan said last week, too. Right. Uh, it seems like it keeps getting pushed out further and further. Uh, Bank of America uh, last fall was warning that the economy would be losing hundreds of thousands of jobs. Right around now, we're actually seeing the opposite. And things have just been so much stronger than expected that um, Moody's Analytics chief economist Mark Zandi, yeah. he told me, 
quote, increasingly the odds of a recession this year are fading. And again, that doesn't mean, right, that things can't change. Something bad could happen and, and mm-hmm. that could cause a recession. Or maybe it's just delayed until next year, right? Uh, the big debate for the longest time was hard landing yeah. or soft landing. And now it doesn't look like there's a hard landing and it's sort of shifted to either soft landing or no landing where the Fed has to do more next year. But for now, I think it's good news that we're not in the recession that people thought we would be. I think that's a great way to end, Matt. Certainly, you can always, you know, predict or forecast what might happen in the future. But for now, jobs are plentiful and people are spending and we can leave it there. Exactly. Yeah. Thank Thank you, Matt. Thank you, guys. Also this morning, court resuming in the UK phone hacking trial against a publisher of the Daily Mirror, Prince Harry, is expected to give evidence in court as he and more than 100 other high-profile figures are suing the Mirror newspaper group with accusations of hacking their phones going back as far as 20 years. Renata Bashir is covering all of this live outside of the High Court in London with more. Good morning. What can you tell us? Well, look, Poppy, we are already learning more details from Prince Harry's legal representatives inside the court today, uh, delivering their opening statements. Now, according uh, to Prince Harry's representation, some 147 articles have been submitted as part uh, of his claim. Articles which had featured personal details, private information around Prince Harry's life, uh, including details around his relationship with his brother, the Prince of Wales, arguments, conversations, details around his relationship with former girlfriend Chelsea Davey and the on around at Sandhurst during his military training. Now, they claim these bits of information were obtained via illegal means, namely through phone hacking, uh, through the interception of Prince Harry's voicemails and also uh, through the use of private investigators. Now, Prince Harry has been selected uh, as among four uh, people to provide evidence uh, over the coming days. This will take uh, three days, of course, but there are, as you said, more than 100 claimants in this case, including notable figures, actors, sports, celebrities, and other uh, high-profile figures taking part in this case. Now, as we understand it, Prince Harry has already arrived in London. He isn't believed to be present today at this court hearing at the High Court behind me, but he is expected to give evidence at the High Court tomorrow. And the Mirror Group newspapers uh, maintains that it did not do anything with regards to wrongdoing. They say their senior news editors were not aware of any wrongdoing at the time. This, of course, dates back to between 1991 and 2011. They also claim that some of these uh, lawsuits have just come in simply too late. Now, Prince Harry, of course, for him, this is a hugely personal, deeply important matter. He has long been very vocal around his hopes to reform media practices. He has spoken openly about the impact the media intrusion has had not only on his life, but that of his wife, and, of course, his late mother, Princess Diana. Bobby? Extremely personal for him. Nada, thank you for the reporting. We appreciate it. And happening today in Colorado, women set to hold a sit-in at the state's capital to demand a total ban on guns. Two of those women leading the sit-in are going to join us next. Also, U.S. fighter jets scrambling to reach a private plane whose pilot was unresponsive. That set off a sonic boom around the nation's capital. We have new details this morning on what happened inside that plane. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Guns in this country are now the leading cause of death for children and teenagers. That's right, above everything else, surpassing car crashes. And a group of women in Colorado are gathering this morning at the state's capital in Denver to demand action. They don't just want to limit guns. They are calling for a ban in the state, a complete ban of guns. The organization is called, and the event is called, Here for the Kids. 
and they say they're going to hold a sit-in, quote, until Governor Jared Polis signs an executive order to ban guns and implement a statewide buyback program. I should note, this group is founded by black, indigenous women of color and, quote, respectfully asks white women to put their bodies on the ground because, quote, historically white women are the least likely to be brutalized by police. Joining us now are two moms who are in Denver to support this anti-gun movement, actress Lake Bell and co-host and managing editor of Daily Blast Live, Sam Shocker. Ladies, mothers, activists, using your voice, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us, Poppy. Lake, make the case. Why are you doing this? I mean, I, you know, I don't think you have to be a mother to see the logic in prioritizing um, children's lives over gun ownership. It's, you know, it's, it's sobering and it's painful to think that we've become sort of numb to even how, how gross, grossly out of control the, the problem is. And, um, you know, I, I was just saying to Sam that I just feel like I'm so encouraged by how many grassroots organizations have shown up today, but then additionally, people who don't have children. Um, you don't mm-hmm. really need children to, to understand that guns being the number one killer of children in this country is, is, some, is, is, a, is a message and a, um, is a reality to fight for. Um, I it's just, a national crisis. We're in an emergency. We're in a, in a national emergency, Poppy. Mm-hmm. And for anyone that doesn't believe that, you're conditioned and you're numb to what's happening. I, I also think it's not really, it's, it's not partisan. You know, ch- children being murdered in their s- schools or having teens kind of take, you know, take a wrong turn on a, on a driveway or knock on someone's door and, and getting gunned down is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I don't think that's, I, I think that's just sort of sensible. And I will say, speaking of sensible and it being nonpartisan, when I canvassed for this event here in Colorado, I ran into people from all walks of the aisle, from all walks mm. of, of, of life. And every single one of them, as soon as you bring up, whether they're Republican or Democrat, as soon as you bring up, guns are the number one killer of kids and teens. You will start to hear stories. Yes, my nephew lost his life to suicide via firearm. Or yes, my daughter was at Columbine. Or yes, my child was right outside of the Aurora school shooting. So even when our children survive these traumatic events, you still have to realize everyone talks about mental health. Of course, mental health is ingrained in this. If we're worried about mental health, can you imagine the trauma and the PTSD that this is causing from lockdown drills to everything surrounding gun violence to our youth right now, to adults right now. If, if mental illness is an issue right now, imagine what it will, what it will be in five years, one year, 10 years. Yeah. We have to act now. The urgency is now. So I mean, me- mental health. I mean, you think about your children going, going to school and having to do um, an active shooter lockdown. I mean, think about that mental toll. I know you as a parent too. Think about it every you know, day. I, um, yes. Uh, yeah, you think about it every day, and so do so do most Americans. Yes. So, so I thought it was interesting. The response. Well, look, you know, I don't have to tell you this runs into all sorts of issues in the courts. The Second Amendment, how the Supreme Court has ruled, would make this unconstitutional at this point. That's just a, a point of fact. But I thought it was interesting that Governor Polis's staff, in response to this, said that the governor quote will not issue an unconstitutional order that will be struck down in the courts simply to make public relations statements. He will continue to focus on real solutions. 
And he has done a number of things on guns, right? In the state, he signed laws to yeah. raise the age to yes. buy a firearm to 21. He established a minimum waiting period, um, expanded the state's red flag laws. So for you guys, is this about more than just bumping up against this issue in the courts? This is about a broader message, no? Yes. Number one, we need to shape a new social norm. First of all, it's there. A lot of people are afraid to say the quiet parts out loud that more guns equal more death. We are so ingrained in in gun culture in this country that it's hard to say that and acknowledge it out loud. So number one, pushing this social norm that's already existed within our country right now, because 64% of Americans, 64% of Americans, according to USA Today, they want gun reform. That's more important to them than preserving the rights of guns. So at the end of the day, is it unconstitutional? Yes, but so was slavery. We abolished mm. slavery. So there's many mm. things about the Constitution that can change. Amendments, it's meant to change. Um, and then jump in, please, no, Lake. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, that I think, you know, you don't have to be a, a constitutional scholar to understand that the Constitution is a living document. It's, it's, it's up for amendment. It's up for evolution. Um, that's our privilege as humans to evolve. Um, and, um, you know, I, I recognize that the, the Second Amendment is, is, you know, what's standing in the way of this being more of a national conversation. Um, but I also, you know, we are, this is a movement led by black, brown, and indigenous yep. women, as you said earlier. And ostensibly, they have, you know, given us the playbook, the abolitionist playbook, yeah. when we talk about, um, you know, amendments that changed the course of our history. The civil rights movement. Yeah. So I think in thinking of that, I think you have to be, you have to think big. You have to think um, in terms of, uh, you know, big picture and, and making a big swing. And as Syra Rao, um, one of our, you know, one of the leadership here, she says, you know, we haven't lost our minds. We've lost our imaginations. Yes. And I think that that has been I, I was, very much a North Star. I was really I struck reading her when, when she said that and the fact that as you brought up the civil rights movement, that the way that this is being held, the sit-in starting this morning, is really modeled on the 1965 Selma to Montgomery marches. I wish we had more time, but yeah. I think you guys are going to be there for days. So please, please come back, Lake and Sam, and join yeah. us. <laughs> Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you for your support. We yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour, 8 a.m. Eastern. We're glad you're with us. Rahel Solomon by my side. Good morning. morning. And we begin with that. You wonder why that dog was running? Because that was a sonic boom rattling the nation's capital as fighter jets scramble to chase an unresponsive plane that was flying over Washington, D.C. through restricted airspace. We'll have the latest on the crash and those on board. Also, new video shows a Chinese warship nearly collide with a U.S. Navy destroyer. CNN just spoke with America's top general, Mark Milley. What he said about it. Can't wait for that interview. Also, today could be Apple's biggest product launch since the Apple Watch. What we're learning about the company's new mixed reality headset. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now.
And here is where we begin with a CNN exclusive interview with America's top general, that is Mark Milley, as tensions mount with China. Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman sat down with the Joint Chiefs Chairman in Normandy, France today. This comes after a Chinese warship nearly collided with the U.S. Navy destroyer during a military exercise. Look at that video. That's in the Taiwan Strait. The Pentagon says the Chinese ship cut right in front of the destroyer and came within 150 yards of crashing into it. The video of the close encounter shows it all. Also top of mind, Ukraine and the looming counteroffensive. Russia claims it repelled a large-scale attack by Ukrainian forces who were trying to break through Russian lines in southeastern Ukraine. So let's go to Oren Lieberman live in Normandy. Look, when Mark Milley talks, people listen. Quite a sit-down you had. What's the biggest takeaway? Absolutely. We had quite a bit of time with him, and we talked about a number of different uh, issues, ranging from Ukraine uh, to China to issues facing the military broadly. But of course, a lot of this focused on Ukraine as we've been watching what's happening essentially on the other side of the continent and pointing out that D-Day is a celebration, a commemoration of the largest uh, counteroffensive in modern European history as we wait for a counteroffensive in Ukraine. We asked him, having watched this war for nearly the past year and a half, is Ukraine ready for the counteroffensive? And does it believe, does he believe rather, that the counteroffensive itself will be successful? He was careful in how he viewed what will happen here because of the uncertainty of military operations. But here's what he had to say. So I think it's too early to tell uh, what outcomes are going to happen. I think the Ukrainians are very well prepared. As you know very well, the United States and other allied countries in Europe and, and really around the world have provided training and ammunition and advice, uh, intelligence, et cetera, to the Ukrainians. We're supporting them. Uh, they're in a, a war that's an existential threat for the very survival of Ukraine uh, and has greater meaning to the rest of the world uh, for, for Europe, uh, really for the United States, uh, but also for, for, for the globe. We certainly talked to him more about Ukraine, but you hear the point he made at the end there, how crucially he views the war in Ukraine, not only for the country itself, but for Europe and beyond. And that's where his emphasis was on much of our conversation, what he's referred to as the rules-based international order, which is part of what's at stake when it comes to Ukraine. So there will certainly be a lot more on that topic, Poppy. How fascinating also, Oren, to get to sit down with him a day after we all see this video of a Chinese warship getting within 150 yards of U.S. and Canadian ships in the Taiwan Strait. What did he say about that and just the broader context of U.S.-China relations right now? For him, one of the important aspects here is levels of communication between Beijing and Washington. And that's where, although there are some successes, some breakthroughs here, there are also some challenges. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who was just at a defense conference in Singapore, did not meet with his Chinese counterpart, even though CIA Director Bill Burns was just in China and there's another senior State Department official there. But he emphasized that the relationship between China and, and the U.S., the relationship between two great powers, must not veer towards conflict. And that's where the concern is that is the import of making sure there are different levels of dialogue and communication between Beijing and Washington to make sure the relationship stays in the realm of, of competition, even as the U.S. sees these as more aggressive encounters coming from the Chinese military, whether it's the Taiwan Strait over this past weekend or just a couple of weeks ago over the South China Sea. Well, Oren, thank you for the reporting again. I can't wait to see the rest of the interview. You can all see Oren's exclusive interview with General Milley 
4 p.m., the lead with Jake Tapper. It'll be there and also AC360 with Anderson later tonight. And joining us now is CNN's chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo. Jim, good morning. Of course, you follow this, uh, these developments very closely. What are your thoughts when uh, you see this video and we have these rising tensions between U.S. and China? I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, first, when this happens, th this does not happen by accident. Chinese uh, warship commanders are not freelancers, nor are Chinese uh, pilots, as we saw with that close encounter last week. This happens with, with the approval uh, from the very top in China, and, and this is part of a broader strategy by the Chinese military to, Chinese, to challenge U.S. military operations in the region, both in the South China Sea, where we saw, for instance, that U.S. reconnaissance flight harassed a number of days ago, but also here in the Taiwan Strait. The U.S does these operations on purpose uh, to show that these are international waters, that the U.S. views them as international waters and reserve its right, reserves its right to fly and sail through international waters. Of course, the Taiwan Strait takes on special importance because it's right between China and Taiwan. And China has uh, been raising the threat of the possibility of taking Taiwan by force, which, of course, the U.S. opposes. And, and again, these these uh, na naval operations there by U.S. ships, these uh, crossings of the Taiwan Strait are deliberate message sending, right, to say we support Taiwan as it is and, and this country opposes any Chinese military action there. So when China challenges that, mm -hmm. that's a d deliberate challenge uh, to the U.S. position here. And I should also note this. That's very close at sea. 150 yeah. yards may sound like, uh, well, that gives you some, some steering room. These are big ships. They don't turn very quickly. The potential of having a collision there is real. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you've been on these ships, literally, mm -hmm. Jim. You know that better than anyone. Let me, let me just ask you also about, I thought it was interesting that Mike Turner, who obviously is a Republican chair of the House Intel Committee, said on one of the Sunday morning shows yesterday, we're seeing, in his words, unbelievable aggression from China. And his view is that the Biden administration has been too passive. They should do more. What can the Biden administration do, given we just heard Jake Sullivan say at some point Biden will meet with Xi Jinping? Well, I think that there's always the politics of, of how this is read. The, the U.S. operations in, in that part of the world have been pretty consistent uh, from Obama, even to Trump, and, yeah. and here, to, it, here to Biden of continuing these, these freedom of navigation operations, as they're called, sailing through international waters in the Strait, South China Sea, et cetera. So the, none of those operations are new. The frequency is about the same. What has changed is China's aggression in responding to them, mm -hmm. and also things we've talked about on this broadcast before, right? Flying surveillance balloons over the con over the continental U.S. So it has ratcheted up. Um, and th there is, uh, by the way, you get some of that criticism from Democrats, not just Republicans as well, yeah. as to what can the U.S. do to project greater strength while at the same time, and this goes to Millie's comments there, not escalating, right? Because there's great concern about you know, what re you're both measuring each other's reactions, right? And you don't want to get on, caught on some sort of escalation ladder where so, you, you, you get it, it within the realm, right, of an act of war. And, and that's the dangerous thing. All it takes is one mistake, one miscommunication, one jet that collides with a jet or one ship that collides with a ship. And that's the other element here is, the, is that neither side wants to go that far. far. Right, it's, right. It's, a really, it's a really dicey time. I don't think there's any way to describe it. Really delicate. Jim, as you know, several Republican presidential candidates over the weekend and also last night during our town hall uh, took aim at former President Donald Trump for praising North Korean leader Kim Jong-un after he was elected to the executive board of the WHO last week. Uh, I just want to play a stop for you and then discuss it on the other side.
I was surprised to see that. I mean, I think one, Kim Jong-un is a murderous dictator. They whether it's my former running mate or anyone else, no one should be praising the dictator in North Korea or or praising uh, the, uh, the, the, the leader of Russia who has launched uh, an unprovoked war of aggression in Ukraine. I mean, Kim Jong-un is a thug. I don't think we ever should congratulate dictators. Congratulate our friends. Don't congratulate our enemies. It emboldens them when we do that. So, Jim, what does it tell you that they're so united, at least on this issue against Trump? It's notable, right, because it shows that on the praise for dictators, whether it's Kim Jong-un, Putin or Xi Jinping for that part, right? Donald Trump during his term said some quite uh, praising words of Xi Jinping as well, uh, is that he's on an island. To say, but, but whether with Democrats or within his own party in terms of the deference and the, the praise that he shows for for the, these leaders. So to hear from Republicans in uncertain and Republican challengers, of course, to Trump for the nomination in no uncertain terms that, that Kim Jong Un, murderous dictator. That's a fact. Uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, the, the one pursuing the largest, bloodiest war in Europe since World War Two. You know, it, it's his fault to hear those statements from them shows that that uh, Donald Trump's positions on those conflicts, and remember, go back to the CNN town hall, he, Trump would not say which side he wants to win in that conflict, right? So in that sense, his positions are outliers even within his own party. Republican challengers can yeah. when it, com that. it comes yeah. at a time, Jim, just before you go, when North Korea is claiming that they've miniaturized nuclear warheads. Yeah. I mean, the moment. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, we can't not pay attention to what's happening in North Korea. There's so much for folks at home, and I get it, because you've got Russia in Ukraine. You've got tensions with China. North Korea, for years, presidents of both parties in this country, Democrats and Republicans, said they would not allow a nuclear North Korea. North Korea is nuclear today. It has nuclear weapons, and it has missiles capable of carrying those nuclear weapons. Yeah. And as they advance, make them smaller. That means, sadly, it's the prospect of being able to fit more warheads on the top of one weapon makes it harder to defend against. I mean, that, that is a dangerous place to be, but that's the that's the reality we're living in today. Jim Shudo, great to have your insight and analysis on the on this issue. Good Thank to see you. you. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. This morning, officials investigating the crash of a private plane with an unresponsive pilot. This happened in Virginia, and it prompted military fighter jets to scramble so fast they caused a sonic boom. Listen. So the National Transportation Safety Board will begin the process of documenting the scene and examining the aircraft. Authorities say all four people on board that plane were killed. Our Pete Montine joins us now. How can something like this happen? You know, what's so disturbing here, Poppy, is why the pilot on board this plane and why the other people on board this plane were unresponsive to this military fighter jet interception. Really alarming details here. And the big question now is whether or not this private jet, a Cessna Citation, seats between about seven and ten people, the air inside is pressurized, meaning that it makes it breathable, more compressed, not breathable outside at high altitude, if there was a rapid decompression in this case, meaning that the air inside whooshes out because of some mechanical failure, maybe the door was open or there was a cracked window, maybe something in the structural uh, integrity of the airplane. If you're up high at 34,000 feet, the pilots have very little time to respond. 10,000 feet, they've got a lot of time to respond. 25,000 feet, three to five minutes and put on an oxygen mask. 35,000 feet, 30 minutes 
to 60 seconds. That is when hypoxia starts to set in. It's really the insidious killer. It's very hard for pilots to recognize. I can tell you, as a pilot and flight instructor, the first symptoms, your fingernails go blue. Then you start to get a bit of visual impairment. Also, maybe acting a little drunk, maybe a little giddy. And then, of course, judgment impairment, and you could slip into unconsciousness. It's very, very dangerous. And this is something that the NTSB will have to look at here They really have their work cut out for them now to try and figure out if this is, in fact, the case. A lot of aviation experts I'm talking to say that is likely, can't rule it out just yet, because this sounds, on paper, at least very similar to the Payne-Stewart crash of 1999. You may remember that pro golfer was on board a Learjet at 40,000 feet. Uh, Fighter jets also sent up to intercept that plane. That plane crashed in an unpopulated area in South Dakota. In this case, this plane crashed in an unpopulated area in Virginia. A lot of big questions here that investigators will look into, Poppy. It's really scary and just so sad for lives lost. Pete, appreciate the reporting. Well, coming up for us, Nikki Haley took on guns and abortion in a CNN town hall last night. Coming up, we will discuss the big takeaways. Also, oil prices rising after Saudi Arabia vows to cut production in a major way again. What does it mean for you? We'll talk about that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So really fascinating CNN Republican presidential town hall last night with Nikki Haley talking to the crowd in Iowa, addressing an array of topics, distancing herself from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and her former boss, Donald Trump. Here's some highlights. I think we can all agree on banning late-term abortions. I think we can all agree on encouraging adoptions and making sure those foster kids feel more love, not less. I think we can agree on doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them. I think we can agree on the fact that contraception should be accessible. And I think we can all come together and say any woman that has an abortion shouldn't be jailed or, or, or given the death penalty. Can you mentioned a shooting at the schools? You need to end gun-free zones. Gun-free zones, when you look at, killers always look for a place that's a gun-free zone because guess what? Nobody else is gonna be able to protect themselves. I don't trust government to deal with red flag laws. I don't trust that they will, that they won't take them away from people who rightfully deserve to have them. Don't lie to them and say, oh, we don't have to deal with entitlement reform. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's the reality. I'm always going to tell the truth. Is it going to hurt? Yes, but for our kids, they know they're not going to get it anyway. Jake did press her, though, to put a age on it, and we didn't get an answer there. But joining us now to talk about all the headlines from last night, former White House Communications Director Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN senior political commentator and former senior advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod. Good morning, guys. Morning. You were up late. I was listening to your smart analysis after the town hall, and now you're back up early. Sleepy analysis, yeah. Well, give us us your read in terms of what Nikki Haley succeeded at and where she fell short last night. Look, I thought that she had a very strong night in terms of her performance, and she sort of set the tone of it right when she came out. And She's, and Jake offered her the chair. She said, no, I, I prefer to stand. You can sit if you'd like. <laughs> and, and that, in a sense, was she, she took command of that stage. And she's a great performer. She's, she's folksy. She's warm. She can be tough. And she's a great performer. You can see David Chalian said last night, well, you can see she's been 
work in the Iowa yeah. town hall mm -hmm. circuit. I'm familiar with that circuit. And yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. The issue is two. One is she tends to kind of, uh, she's an artful dodger on controversial stuff. So her governor just signed a six-week abortion ban. She would not comment. It's held up by the courts now, but yeah. On it. On guns, she was very strong on, on, on elements of it and then said, and, and mental health in particular, and, said, and then said, but I won't support red flag laws right. because uh, I don't trust the government to right. make this judgment. After she, she previously had said the government should have done something in Charleston to stop that guy from getting guns. So it's those kinds of inconsistencies that you can get away with with strong performances when you're running at the state level. But when you're running for president, that stuff catches up with you. And she's just got to kind of plant her feet and take a stand on some of these things and take some risks. Yeah, Alyssa, in terms of sort of dodging the, the question that Jake asked her about abortion, I mean, how is this going to play with the base? So I actually thought the abortion answer was the most interesting of the night. Um, it's definitely the most nuanced answer that we've seen in a Republican primary. And noting that this is in Iowa, the most conservative part of the primary, um, the, it shows how much this issue has shifted post-Dobbs, that you have a Republican primary candidate saying anything other than, I'm going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, she, listen, that's a, she's doing a tough dance not answering the question in her home state of six weeks. But this one, this was a very different answer than... DeSantis than I expect we're going to see from Mike Pence than I think we've seen from virtually everyone that's in the race right now. The thing with Nikki Haley is this. She may have the most political talent in the race on the Republican or Democratic side. My question is, does she have the political will? And what I mean by that is she's got to come up in the polls. She's kind of hovered around one to five percent. And that is going to require her to take on Donald Trump directly, something that she largely avoided doing, except with some minor areas like Ukraine last Including night. Including in her own state. Yeah. And that's problematic. Yeah, she she kind of went ahead. for the jugular, uh, not the jugular, but the capillary last night. You know, she just sort of grazed him. Her whole theme was we have to we have to get past the vendetta politics and anger and division and so on. Well, he's sort of the author of all of that. And if you're not willing to take him on on that, uh, then you're not really going to make the separation you said, need to make. She also said politics is a blood sport, and I know that better than anyone. So let's see if she's going to really, really get into it. I'd love for you both to weigh in on this moment from last night where she talked about what she views as the, in her words, women's issue of our time. Here it was. The word woke used to be used by progressives to talk about an awareness of inequities and historical inequities. But obviously it means something else to conservatives criticizing it. What does it mean to you? How do you define woke? There's a lot of things. I mean, you want to start with biological boys playing in girls' sports. That's one thing. The fact that we have gender pronoun classes in the military now. I mean, all of these things that are pushing what a small minority want on the majority of Americans, it's too much. It's too much. I mean, the idea that we have biological boys playing in girls' sports, it is the women's issue of our time. Is it? I think is that, that Republican I, voters see it. 
I'm not sure that I think this is the women's issue of our time. And, and I've said this before. Listen, she needed to throw some red meat to the base. Um, last night felt very much like a general election performance for a Republican candidate until she got into the trans issue and guns issue. I remind folks, this is an issue that is the minority within the minority. The trans community is an incredibly small community within the United States. Then break that down even further to it dealing with athletes in high school or collegiate level. That's something that I think a conservative could push back and say, why can't local governments deal with this? Why can't school boards, why can't the NCAA, why does it require the federal government and the presidency to deal with it? So I'm not sure that has a lot of legs to it. I also think we're going to retire the word woke after this election. It is so overused, <laughs> it is losing all meaning. Yeah. No, I, listen, I, I agree. I think the, the, Nikki Haley's dilemma is that she's sort of an old school Republican, uh, sort of, you know, Bush type Republican in a Republican party that has changed. So you saw elements of the old in there on defense and some other issues. And then she threw a few bones to the base. And this was one of those, the trans issue is one of those bones. I'm not anatomically qualified to answer this question probably, but no, I don't think that, I don't think most women would tell me that that, that is the women's issue yeah. of our time. David and Alice, Alyssa, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin over the weekend, flirted with a plan B, what a plan B would look like. I want to play the sound and then get you guys to weigh in. Is a third party run still in the realm of possibilities? You better have plan B because if plan A shows that we're going to the far reaches of both sides, the far left and the far right. And you're saying it possibly could include Joe Manchin. I'm not saying Who's it going to include or exclude? I mean, he's facing a really competitive race in his own state of West Virginia. I mean, is that an actual possibility that he Listen, jumps in? I mean, I don't want to be unkind to Senator Manchin, but he's kind of dead man walking in West Virginia. There's nowhere for him to go. He's got a popular Republican governor in a state that Donald Trump carried by almost 40 points. He didn't win by very much last time. So he knows that he can't win re-election in that state. This would be a graceful exit for him. And he may believe there are people in that no labels movement are trying to persuade him that he could actually win in a race with Biden and uh, Trump. By the way, I don't think Biden necessarily represents the far left of anything. Uh, I think he's trying to develop a rationale for, for doing this. He, he did a slew of interviews yesterday morning on the Sunday shows. And one of the points, one of the interviews that I thought was so interesting is he was asked, you know, Alyssa, if, if you see Biden moving more to the middle like he did in the agreement on the pipeline in the, in the debt ceiling bill, does that make a path harder for you and does that make you rethink, right? Because what he brought against is saying Biden's been pushed too far to the left. Yeah, but I think Biden's also going to have to worry about losing progressives if he if he goes any further. Um, I, th listen, I would love for us to exist in a system in which a third party could be viable and fruitful, and I think it would actually be more representative of the American populace, but we're not there. Um, if he were to run this, this no-labels effort is frankly a, like a donor's pipe dream that I don't think is going to do anything other than probably prop up the more extreme side of the Republican Party, assuming that Donald Trump is the nominee. So I'm mo not sure. Mo mostly a Republican donor's pipe dream, people who are unhappy with Trump. But the irony of the whole thing is if Joe Manchin runs on a third party line, the very high likelihood is that he will elect Donald Trump if Donald Trump is yeah, the he's nominee of this party. taking votes from the right, not the left. Yeah. Thank you. The numbers game. Thank Alyssa, you guys. David, good to have you. Great to see much. you guys. Okay, so Wednesday, Dan and Bash will moderate another CNN Republican town hall. This will be with former Vice President Mike Pence. It's in Iowa, and it starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, only right here on CNN. 
Well, gas prices could soon be on the rise in the U.S. That's as Saudi Arabia announces plans to slash production by a million barrels per day starting next month. Let's get right to CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Roman. So tell us about the impact this could have really to all of us. Well, you know, we've had a, a nice tailwind here in, in the U.S. economy, and that has been falling gasoline prices and falling oil prices for some time. And now Saudi Arabia stepping up there and saying there will be uh, an output cut. And, and that what that will stand to do is raise gas prices and raise oil prices eventually. But how much still remains to be seen? This is uh, 9 million barrels per day is what Saudi Arabia is going to pump from now on. Uh, that's down from 10 million barrels per day. But there was a lot of, uh, I would say, dissension inside the OPEC plus cartel about where they're going to put oil prices and where they're going to put uh, output here. So I think when the very near term is what it means, look at where gas prices are today, 3.55 a gallon. That is down 25 percent from last year. So this has been a good piece of the inflation story in the U.S., but also in the European Union, where, you know, uh, inflation levels have been coming down, still too high, but have been coming down. Uh, what does the White House have to say? about this? Well, the White House points out that it doesn't set these prices. That is OPEC. We are not a party to OPEC Plus, which makes its own decisions. We are focused on prices for American consumers, not barrels, and prices have come down significantly since last year. Overall, I think what we'll watch here is just how much oil prices could rise and, and how much gas prices could rise. The expectation had been that these gas prices would stay well below year-ago levels, in part because global demand is softening for oil from China, from Europe, and from the United States because, you know, the overall economies are cooling off. We're not we're not running as quite a hot economy this year as we were last year. So that's what we're watching right now on the oil story. It has been a very good story for oil prices. And, and maybe you're going to see those declines slow down or even reverse a little bit. We will be watching. Christine thank Romans, you, thank you. It really brings into question, though, Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. Oh, that's and the a, goal yeah. of that. And look what has happened Whether since with OPEC frequent. plus. Uh, happening today, Apple set to reveal its biggest product launch in a year, in years, not just a year, a, quote, mixed reality headset. What is that? I can tell you it's expensive. <laughs> That's next. If you look back at a point in time, you know, zoom out to the future and look back, you'll wonder how you led your life without augmented reality. Just like today, you wonder how did people like me grow up without the internet? That is quite a bet, right? Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm going to be thinking about it, but somebody might be apparently. Well, for years, Apple CEO Tim Cook has expressed interest in augmented reality. And today, the company may finally be ready to officially enter this space in just a few hours. The tech giant is expected to unveil its most ambitious new hardware product in years, a mixed reality headset that apparently offers both virtual reality and augmented reality uh, technology that essentially overlays virtual images on live video of the real world. But as our next guest writes, this Apple launch feels different. Quote, there are real questions about whether anyone will want to buy what Apple is reportedly selling, an ungainly piece of equipment that will cost around $3,000 and make the wearer look extremely uncool. Joining us now is senior correspondent at Vox, Peter Kafka. Peter, welcome. Good morning. So, uh, yeah, lots of speculation, lots of anticipation, but also lots of questions about what this is going to look like. Lots of questions and kind of muted anticipation. I've been okay. covering Apple launches for a long time, and this maybe has the least buzz I've ever seen, mm. especially for such a huge, unprecedented launch for them.
I thought this was interesting. You wrote in your piece, but this one feels different talking about, you know, their announcements. Yeah. The coming headset reveal seems deflated and muddled without anyone, anything like the anticipation that accompanied earlier products. But then you go on to say, in the best case scenario, it's an early version of tech that hints at the promise to come when we get better, cheaper and lighter, because this thing's going to be like three grand, we're hearing. That is the reported purchase price that we keep hearing about over and over. And it's not going to be cheap, whatever it is. I mean, Meta has a version of this thing that they've announced is going to be $500, but it won't be anywhere near as advanced. And we think what Apple is saying here is this is the future. So you can take a very early stab at it, starting whenever these things actually go on sale. But down the line is when these things are really going to be mainstream, hopefully, if you're Apple. So why do you think the anticipation or the buzz has been more muted? Is it that it's kind of clunky and bulky and, as you say, uncool looking? Is it the cost or is it that it's too early days? You know, we've seen there, there are headsets out in the wild. You can buy them today. They're not enormously popular. And I think that is part of the reason that people aren't overly excited about this one. Like they've seen headsets before. They're not sure they want to own one that Apple puts out. It'll have to be something amazing. And again, you won't be able to see how amazing it is until you actually strap this thing on your head. Mm. But when I think about why Apple's been so successful, it's because every big launch that's taken off, whether it was the Mac or whether it was the iPhone or the iPod or the, is it called iWatch? I don't know, I don't have one. The Apple, an Watch, Apple Watch. Is because it made our lives easier. How does this make our lives easier? Is it just entertainment based? Like Tim Cook seems to be saying, you're gonna need this as much as we need the internet. Yeah, Tim, the people, everyone is trying to figure out how to sell these things. Um, Meta has tried to say these things are for work and for collaboration, but also they're gaming. Apple doesn't seem to be playing up the idea that it's a gaming device. Again, $3,000 is a very expensive gaming device. Uh, Tim Cook did an interview with GQ earlier this year and right. sort of played up the idea that this is something you can work with people using. I think they're all sort of casting about for a use case for it, and that's pretty worrisome. If you're an Apple bull, by the way, you say everything you just said. You said they launched, uh, they launched in the past, they've taken devices that other people have made, and they've made a better, better. version of that. That's the best argument for Apple. I think one thing that could help is understanding the real applications of it. Are we talking about when you say work, perhaps using it, and then you are transported into a meeting with your colleagues in Los Angeles. I mean, help me understand. That's sort a of theory, the is you're, you strap these things on, and I'm looking at a virtual version of you. Again, I keep saying meta over and over, but meta has been sort of proselytizing on behalf of Apple in one way here, saying, here's how you could use these things. The problem is no one is using these things. What's the whale in the school gym thing? Do we have video of this? Okay, watch. everyone should watch this as we talk about it. This is sort of like one e example of something. That's, by the way, that's not Apple. That's a company called Magic Leap. Right. And so the idea is that Apple's tech would make things like for what these companies are creating more accessible. Well, this was an earlier version of a headset, which didn't really pan out. Uh, enormous amount of money invested in it. No one used it. Still exists, by the way. But again, lots of these things sort of still exist basically on someone's shelf. But that is the pitch, right, is that you can look at reality. I could look at you guys and I could also have a alien or a whale appear. I don't know why I'd want that. But in theory, we could do that. I mean, I think for now, it's just nice to just look at you here. I at much the desk. prefer in person. And you here at the desk. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see. Nice to have you. This morning, the FBI is bringing a Biden-related internal document to Capitol Hill. Why lawmakers on the Oversight Committee want to see it? Plus, you're in Vandersloot. The prime suspect in the disappearance of American teenager Natalie Holloway will be transferred into U.S. custody this week. The new details ahead.
Welcome back. The prime suspect in the 2005 disappearance of American teenager Natalie Holloway will be transferred into U.S. custody this week. Peruvian officials say they will hand over Joran Vandersloot on Thursday. He's set to stand trial for allegedly extorting Holloway's family years after her disappearance. Tina Jean Casares joins us live. So, Jean, what more do we know about this transfer? Well, first of all, the transfer from Chayapaca Prison, which was the southernmost tip of Peru, happened in the early morning hours of Saturday. And I think we have video because this is thanks to CNN in Espanol. They were at that southern tip of Peru. It is a very remote area. This is the first video that we have seen of Joran Vandersloot since 2010. And as you notice, he was shackled. The handcuffs were put on. He was, uh, he's got his own clothes on because in Peru you can wear your own clothes. You don't have to wear prison garb. Uh, I noticed when he was signing something at one point, he had a bracelet on that multicolored. So you're going to see it right there, the bracelet. Um, they did medical tests on him in those early morning hours, checked his heart. They took his blood pressure. I understand they did a COVID test. And so he was transferred to a prison where he is now, which is right outside of Lima. It is the Ancon 1 prison. He will remain there until Interpol, which is the intercountry policing agency, picks him up and takes him to the airport. He will be handed off to U.S. law enforcement authorities. And we do have a quote that uh, we want to uh, show you from the president of Peru's Penitentiary Institute. He says... Everything is ready for him to be handed over. We have him safe, which is what the U.S. authority requested, that he would be in good health. That is how we will keep him until the 8th. We guarantee that. That's Javier Yacamoya. Now, of course, this is a temporary transfer. It's under the extradition treaty because he's currently serving that murder sentence. But he will be in the hands of U.S. to face U.S. justice for extortion and wire fraud of Natalie Holloway's mother. But not for murder. Not for murder. No jurisdiction in the U.S. for murder yeah. here. Before extortion. Jeans Kosaris, thank you. Thank you. The body of Brandon Colvin Sr. has been recovered from that six-story residential building collapse in Davenport, Iowa. You'll remember when that happened last Sunday. Officials say they informed the family on Saturday. On the same day, his son graduated from high school. Look at the juxtaposition of those two pictures there. The 18-year-old slept on the pavement near the building, refused to leave despite the risk of the falling structure. Nine survivors were rescued from the rubble. Officials say two other residents are still missing. Well, this morning, the FBI is bringing in internal documents for House oversight leaders to review on Capitol Hill today. Some Republicans expected to shed light on a claim that then-Vice President Biden accepted a bribe of $5 million from a foreign national in exchange for a policy outcome. The document contains allegations made by an unnamed whistleblower, which the FBI and the prosecutors could not corroborate. CNN Sarah Murray joins us now. So, Sarah, why is the FBI bringing the document to Capitol Hill now? Well, look, James Comer, the House Oversight Chair, had subpoenaed the FBI for this document, and he has threatened to hold FBI Director Chris Wray in contempt. So this is sort of the attempt at a compromise for the FBI to come and share this document with Comer, as well as the top Democrat on this committee. You know, it allegedly has these allegations that Joe Biden was involved in a bribery scheme when he was vice president. The White House has denied this and dismissed this as political attacks. And the FBI has urged caution in this in some of their letters 
letters to the committee pointing out that the kind of document that they're going to show these lawmakers today shows information that comes from a confidential source, but it's information that's unverified, that's unsubstantiated. And we've learned from sources that these allegations sort of stem back to the kind of thing that Rudy Giuliani was sharing with the Justice Department back in 2020. At that time, DOJ was led by Bill Barr. This was during the Trump administration. And DOJ was pretty skeptical with these allegations. A lot of the information was coming from Ukrainian sources. And as you pointed out, when FBI and prosecutors started to review this information, they couldn't corroborate the claims. So I think for Republicans, it's going to be sort of a, a heavy lift to try to prove to the American people if there's anything in this that is actually true. But again, they want to move this process forward. They want to see this document today. And I suspect we're going to continue to hear James Comer sort of uh, banging the drum of potential contempt, because what he really wants is a copy of this document to be shared with Congress. All right, more to come here. Sarah, thank you. Thanks. Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, Beyonce filling up stadiums across the world this summer. Harry Anton here with this morning's number. You're welcome. Nothing like a <laughs> nothing like a little Beyonce in the morning. She is, of course, in the middle of her Renaissance store. And you may have noticed while scrolling through social media or maybe just talking to friends, it does seem like everyone is attending more live concerts these days, doesn't it? From Taylor Swift to Beyonce to Bruce Springsteen, concertgoers flocking to music events regardless of the cost. CNN senior data reporter Harry Inton live with this morning's number, Harry, it's like the summer of live events. It's the summer of live events. It's like the spinoff of the summer of George. OK, Live Nation ticket sales in 2023 projected to be 600 million or more. That breaks the all time record, which was back last year when it was 551 million. And why are so many people going out to see concerts? Because of all these great artists who are putting on these concerts. Look at this. Bruce Springsteen, 90 this year. Taylor Swift. At least 60, Beyonce, look at this, 57. So a lot of great artists and people are going out to see them. What other live events are rebounding post-COVID? <laughs> yeah, so what other live events? Perhaps something a little bit more my speed. Major League Baseball attendance. This is the average attendance through about 880 games so far league-wide. Look at this, a little bit south of 27,000 on average. That beats last year, it was close to 25,000. It even slightly beats the 2019 by about 100 folks. So we're really seeing people going out to see baseballs. Well, I've already seen my first game. How about something a little bit more local? This is your favorite hangout spot for people who don't know. That's correct. And I actually asked for the numbers on this. So New York City's comedy seller turned away many because the soul sold out. Look at this. Guess how many people they turned away the first Saturday of June 2023? Wow. A little bit more than 13,000. That beat June of 2022, where it was about 9,000, and June of 2019, when it was a little bit less than 7,000. So a lot more people are coming out, seeing comedy. They turned away 13,000 people in a day? In a day. A single day. So if you want to go with me, Poppy, it's a hot ticket, but I can I bring you. You, Mike Birbiglia, me, we can just hang out at the Comedy Cellar and I'll laugh at all your jokes. What? Yeah. <laughs> You're laughing at them right now, so I don't know if I need to take you out, but we'll do it. Harry, thank Thanks. you. Okay, wait, this is my favorite story of it's the a morning. One. A school bus driver being called a hero because she is. She jumped into action when she smelled smoke. We're going to tell you what happened next.
favorite story of the morning, a hero bus driver saving all 37 students on her bus before it went up in flames. Watch this. Smoke and flames billowing out of that school bus. The pregnant bus driver says it happened about two hours in her normal route. This was last Wednesday. She tells CNN she smelled smoke and then she jumped into action. In my felt in my heart, something was going to happen. Like it wasn't going to turn out good. So that's why I pulled over and I just told the kids like, hey, let's get off, grab your stuff and Let's, let's go. Yes, that is I'm Unique Williams. She says that thankfully the kids listened and got off the bus just 15 to 30 seconds before it burst into flames. She says she was just doing what she would want somebody to do for her child in that situation. And Poppy, uh, yesterday I was on the show with Victor and Victor and I spoke to her. She's pregnant, as we said. She has a one-year-old at home. So she said, you know, perhaps maybe it was her mommy instincts that played a role, but just incredible and so many people thankful to her. Good instincts. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll see you tomorrow. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.